0: Good morning. Good morning. This morning, I would like to look at the two advents of Christ, and probably more like we're going to look at the first advent, the first coming of Christ, this morning, and tonight we'll begin to look at the second coming of Christ. Um, as I was looking at the list uh, that we have. In there the major Bible doctrines that we're going through, the Lord laid this upon my heart because as I start to think about it, you know, I think we've kind of lost sight of the coming of the Lord. And I remember talking to some people as of uh, recently, and, the, and recently I mean the past few years, that it's almost become a mockery. You know, back in the 80s, we had a lot of prophecy conferences. And over time, We've had a lot of people set dates and everything else and emphasize the coming of the Lord, and he can come any minute. We're not going to make it through the day. And people go, where where is he at? And then some begin to mock it. And we'll get into it eventually, and Peter addresses this. But the thing is, is that the Lord is going to come again. He's going to come, and he's going to take his church home. He's going to come for the saints, and we're going to find out, and he will come with the saints. because There's two phases to the coming, the second coming of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. But one thing we're going to look at in comparison is the first advent of Christ. And you see, in the Old Testament, it was prophesied about the Messiah to come. And you see, just as God is faithful and fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah... In its exact detail, from the exact seed of David, from the tribe of Judah, being born out of Bethlehem, all this stuff we're going to look at was prophesied. God, in the right time, brought about the Messiah. Just as he fulfilled that, he's going to fulfill the future and everything he's prophesied and he said through his word that will come about. That's what I want to focus on this morning. That's what I want to encourage you uh, with is that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. He is faithful to his word, and he will fulfill everything that he has said. One thing I'd like to share, and in this, this the Lord popped this into my mind as Dave was talking about Gary. And I had a guy at work just this last week ask me the question, why does God allow sin to go on? Why does God allow man to continue to destroy each other? Why doesn't God put a stop to it? The same thing with our our brother Will and his sufferings and going through this stuff. What is God doing about it? Does he care? And as I was sitting there talking to him, it hit me in my uh, studies, because I'm slow. I'm one of those people that, uh, you know, it takes someone to hit me up the side of the head with a rock. But as as I'm thinking here and I go, this is what I'm studying to speak on this Sunday. It's the second coming of Christ to put an end to this. Let me share with you just a a few verses in Isaiah. And this is a sidetrack that the Spirit of God just led on my heart. Isaiah 65. And um, if you want to turn to it, we'll begin to read verse 18. But this is the condition of the millennial kingdom. This is the future. This is the time when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come again and set up his kingdom and establish peace on this earth, and put an end to all the killings, and the wars, and the destruction. And he's going to rule righteously. What it says in verse 18, it says, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and a joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Look at verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. The condition in the millennial kingdom and in the future is going to be different. God's going to go, and through his plan, and what we're going to look at is he is restoring it back to that state that was in the Garden of Eden. All that sin has brought about, all that Satan has tried to accomplish, God is still in control. We might think right now that everything's in chaos and out of control, but God's still in control. He knows exactly what he's doing, and we're going to see that this morning in the coming, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that God knew exactly when he was going to come, sent him, and he came and did what he wanted him to do. What is the biblical perspective that we believe the Bible teaches about the the, the two comings of Christ? The first coming would be described as the suffering. He came as a lamb. He came to suffer and to die for our sins. The second coming would be described as a lion as he comes to rule and reign on this earth to set up his earthly kingdom and fulfill the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. He comes as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. See, and as we look through the scriptures, and as we're going to get into this, a lot of people confuse a lot of different things, and some eliminate the the secret coming of Christ or the rapture of the church. But you see, we're going to find out through all these different comings is that each one is is declared in scripture but sometimes in the old testament they didn't quite see it in its entirety as we see it in the new testament but a comparison of the advent and the comparison what we're going to look at is that you're going to see both of these in the scriptures we're going to see both of them in the old testament the 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 comparison of a lamb versus a lion in isaiah 53 7 as is read this morning he was as a he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. John the Baptist described him as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. A lamb is a very gentle, meek animal. And if you were to compare the lion and the, a lion and a lamb, the children you'd let go and play with the lamb. But nobody's going to let anyone, any of their kids, play with the lion. Although we know in the millennial kingdom they will be able to. But the lamb is one that is meek, that is gentle, that is silent. As they shear the, the, the wool off of its back, it just sits there. And the description of the lamb as the Lord Jesus Christ came, as a lamb to the slaughter, is that he willingly allowed man to crucify him. You see, Israel, and we're going to get into this, but Israel expected the, the lion to come first. They didn't see the lamb, but we're going to see the lamb and what they should have observed in the Old Testament. The lion is the king of the jungle. The lion is ferocious. In Joel chapter 3, verse 16, it says, the Lord will also roar from Zion, speaking of the Messiah that is to come. In Revelation 5, it describes the Lord Jesus Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Look at Genesis chapter 49 with me. A prophecy from, from a long time ago. And you see all the word of God harmonizes together. This is a prophecy back that Israel gave concerning his sons. But I'm not going to look at each one of the sons here. But we want to look at Judah. In which God has declared the Messiah, this lion is going to come from the root of David, but from the tribe of Judah, in which David's from. Look at verse 8 of Genesis chapter 40. Well, let's look back at verse 1, just for context. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. And you see, it's interesting that he says the last days. And I don't believe Jacob even knows what he's prophesying in its entirety here. But the Spirit of God does, now, it, now he knows. And he's putting these words inside Jacob to tell his sons. And he gathers together to, and hear you, sons of Jacob. Now listen to Israel, your father. Now look at verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Now I want you to think of this as we're reading this, to think of the Messiah as the lion that's going to come. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise, and your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. They're all going to come and worship the king, the Messiah. Nine, Judah is a a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He, He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion he shall, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. As we know the, that Judah, though the Messiah, is going to reign forever and ever, nor a, law, a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in blood of the grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Way back when, already. Jacob, not seeing in its entirety, but prophesying through the Spirit of God that Judah, this one that's going to come, is going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. The one that's going to rule and reign on earth here in Jerusalem, with the literal literal earthly political kingdom. You have the lamb and you have the lion. You have the suffering versus the glory that the Lord Jesus Christ came and suffered and died. Yet you're going to see the glory when he returns. You have the servant versus the king. We heard this morning that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. He came to serve us, not to be served, but to serve. Yet in the millennial kingdom, he's going to come back as the king. And all the nations, all the Gentile nations are going to come and bow before him and worship him. Acknowledge him in all of his glory, that he is the rightful Heir to the throne, and he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was judged versus will judged. We know the Father has committed all judgment into his hands, and we know that he's going to reign from Jerusalem as the judge over all the world. And we know when it comes to the great white throne of judgment, he sits on that throne as the judge. But when he came the first time, he came to be judged. It is said in the scriptures that he committed himself to him who judges righteously. He surrendered to the righteous judgment of a holy, righteous God. That our sins were placed upon him in in their entirety. And there our sins were judged on the cross. Yet he was innocent. It wasn't his sins that he died for, but it was the sins, our sins and the sins of the people. He was judged versus he will come and judge it's interesting as you get into this study and as I begin to study and read and, and, and there's so many different avenues we can branch off into in the in both the first coming and the second coming, one of the things that the Lord has laid upon my heart is uh, looking at this first coming from the Old Testament and trying to understand it from The perspective of an Orthodox Jew today and what they would see and what they would understand. So that if you come across uh, a Jewish unbeliever, one that believes in the Messiah, that he's still going to come in the future, but he rejects Jesus as the Messiah, we are challenged to show from the Old Testament that the Lord, that, that the prophecy is that there would come a suffering Messiah. I had a, a fellow co-worker that I worked with that was Jewish. And one of the things I asked him was, and he was an Orthodox Jew. He, he went through all through high school through the Jewish schooling system that they have. Um, he, he was somewhat well-versed in, in the Hebrew Bible and, and so forth. Because they don't study the Bible in English. They study it in Hebrew. And they have to learn it. And he won't even say to me, I'd ask him how to pronounce like Jehovah in the, in the, Old, in the Old Testament. They won't say it in front of you. You have to have such reverence for the word that you have to use it within the, a, a, a holy, righteous context in order to use the word. So I asked him, I said, I said, why is it that you reject Jesus as the Messiah? And some of these people, we have a lot in common because we both believe in the Old Testament. We both believe in Abraham. And when I talked to him about the Abrahamic covenant, his eyes would light up like, like how do you know about that? Uh, or the Davidic covenant, Are these different covenants, they go... Like it's some mystery, but as I talked to him, what he all you can come up with, and he said through his schooling, they studied Jesus. And all you can come up with was that he was a false prophet. So how is he a false prophet? And he he elaborated that he said he was the son of God. Well, he either is the son of God or he's a false prophet, which we believe he is the son of God. He is God come in the flesh. But it's interesting to see how they view Jesus as not being the Messiah. Now, within their opinions, and I've looked up online and different stuff, they do not see Jesus as Messiah because they didn't see a Savior that was going to come and die for their sins. They did not see a meek, lowly Messiah. Some of them. Now, we're going to get into a little bit more of what they, they particularly view. But what they see is the victorious conquering warrior that will restore Israel to all its glory. They, they see David coming, the root of David, which comes and throws off the oppression of the world and establishes the glory in Israel and sets up that kingdom that we're going to read about and find out later on as we study the second coming of Christ. They see that aspect of the Messiah. They do not recognize some do not recognize the this, this suffering aspect. Now, don't take my word for it. I, I printed off some stuff from uh, the Internet because, you know, if it's on the Internet, it's true. So, um, But this is from uh, 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 some Jewish websites. It says, and I'm not going to say the word over and over again because I'll, I'll butcher it, but the, they actually use the Hebrew word for Messiah in here. And you can ask uh, Magdi Irene how to pronounce it. But uh, uh, Mashiach? Mashiach? Mashiach. Okay, good. <laughs> so whenever that word comes up, I'm going I'm to interpret with Messiah. But you see, from their perspective, is that the English word is so, we've so perverted the word Messiah that they cannot use the English word for Messiah. So they go back to the Hebrew word. And he actually says this in here. But it says, Belief in the eventual coming of the Messiah is a basic and fundamental part of the traditional Judaism. It is part of the Rambach's 13 principles of faith, the minimum Jewish requirements for their belief. They go ahead and they recite three times daily, We pray for all the elements of the coming of the Messiah, in gathering of the exiles, restoration of the religious courts of justice, an end of wickedness, sin, and heresy, Reward to the righteous, rebuilding of Jerusalem, restoration of the line of King David, and restoration of temple service. This is from their website. But look at how we don't differ that much from them. And what we believe that's going to take place in the future, we believe the same thing is that the Messiah is going to return again, which we see two comings where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return and he's going to establish the glory of Israel. And he's going to establish the borders. He's going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to reward the righteous. See, we see a lot of this stuff in common with them, but they reject that Jesus is the Messiah because they don't see the two comings. Why do I say that? Because when we talk to them and you come across people that reject them, build on this. Build on what we know, but now we have to prove to them and go into the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. It says here, the term Messiah literally means the anointed one. It refers to the ancient practice of anointing kings with oil when they took the throne. The Messiah is the one who who will be the anointed as king of the ends of days. Now listen to this. This is what they say. The word Messiah does not mean savior. The notation of an innocent, divine, or semi-divine being who will sacrifice himself to save us from the consequences of our sins is purely Christian concept that has no basis in Jewish thought. Unfortunately, the Christian concept has become so deeply ingrained in the English word Messiah that the English word can no longer be used to refer to the Jewish concept. That's why he goes on and uses the Hebrew word. That's their writing. This is what this particular author believes from this. uh, It's from uh, JewFact.org. They look at it as the Messiah will be a great political leader, descendant from King David. The Messiah is often referred to, as, as Messiah ben David, son of David. He will be well versed in Jewish law and observant in its commandments. Now think of this, as he's saying all this stuff, now the reason why I read this out is because think of how the Lord Jesus Christ was well versed in all of the Jewish laws and observant of its commandments. He was the master. And see, you go to the New Testament and you prove, you look, and you say, look, he was the teacher of the teachers. He would stumble, their Pharisees, the men that they went and looked at. They look to as the leaders of uh, the righteous leaders. They see him as he will be a charismatic leader, inspiring others to follow his example. He'll be a great military leader who will win battles for Israel. He'll be a great judge who makes righteous decisions. But above all, he will be a human being, not a God, demi-god, or other supernatural being. That's the sad part. They reject This particular writer rejects that the Messiah is God come in the flesh. And so the Pharisees rejected it. But when we look into the Old Testament, I want you to think of these things as time goes on. That when we look to the Old Testament, we're going to see that he is the mighty God. That he is God come in the flesh. So when you talk to a, a Jewish unbeliever, that you'll be able to help them in their understanding. There's a lot more stuff we can read on. The second aspect that I thought was interesting with, uh, and I got this from uh, my brother, Boyd Nicholson, one of his messages I was listening to on the second coming of Christ, is that there are some that believe in two Messiahs. They call it uh, <clears throat> the Messiah ben Joseph, and there's the Messiah ben David. And I didn't know much about it. I heard Boyd talking about it. But see, when when the Jewish scholars begin to study and they look at the Old Testament, they actually would see the Messiah suffering. They would see Isaiah 53. They would see the Psalms that talk about, the Messianic Psalms. They would see this other aspect of the Messiah lowly riding on a donkey. And they begin to go, wait a minute here it seems like it can't be the same person. You have one that's victorious and triumphant, and this other one is, is lowly and uh, is cut off and dies. So they've come up with this idea, and, it's a, and it says here in this other website, on it says, Jewish tradition speaks of two redeemers, each one called Messiah. Both are involved in ushering in the Messianic era. They are Messiah ben David and Messiah being Joseph. And this is interesting. They go in and in the descendants, and you can get we can get into the I don't want to spend a lot, I don't have the time, but uh, they get into how it's it's of the line of Joseph. It says the essential task of the Messiah being Joseph is the act of the precursor to Messiah bin David. He will prepare the world for the coming of the final Redeemer. Different sources attribute to him different functions. Some even charging him with tasks traditionally associated with the Messiah ben David, such as the gathering of the exiles, the rebuilding of, of, I don't know what that is, but and so forth. It's probably the temple, but it's in Hebrew, so I can't read it. The principal and final function ascribed to Messiah ben Joseph is of the political and military nature. He shall wage war against the forces of evil that oppress Israel. More specifically, he will do battle against Edom. The descendants of Esau, Edom is the comprehensive designation of the enemies of Israel, and it will be crushed through the progeny of Joseph. This it, thus it was prophesied of old. The house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stumble. And so on, he goes on and, and writes about the differences between the two in which they actually ascribe to two messiahs and what he'll get on and go on and say and talk about is that as the the messiah ben joseph goes on and he he fulfills the lowly part but he'll end up dying and then he'll end up later on as he dies messiah ben david will step up and vindicate him and and take israel into their glory it's another aspect see the, the problem that they had is that they didn't see the dual comings They didn't see one Messiah coming to die and the same Messiah then returning a second time to fulfill that aspect. But in the correct view is that they are seeing two aspects of the Messiah. And that's what's important in the Old Testament is that both aspects are alluded to. When we look at the the, uh, perspective of the Old Testament prophets is that If you were to draw a picture and you were to look at it, uh, the Old Testament prophets are looking at mountaintops, looking at peaks. And a lot of times, when we were in Colorado over Christmas break, we were down in the valley. And as we look up, you can see all these different peaks along the mountaintops. Some of them are are over 14,000 feet. Now, as you look at each one of those peaks, I can't tell what's in between the mountains. I can't tell how far these peaks are uh, apart. I can't tell what's in the valleys that, that are between them. It looks like from my perspective of looking up there, you could hop from mountaintop to mountaintop. And so it is in the Old Testament is that as the prophets spoke, they look forward and you can see the peak. And what you would end up seeing is they would see the Messiah that would come. This is all throughout riddle through scripture, that he would come of the tribe of Judah that he would be born out of uh, Bethlehem, that he would be of the lineage of David. And they see him coming, and this is one peak. And then they would see this suffering aspect, but they didn't understand it. But then they see this glorious aspect of the next peak. See, they never saw insight between the, the, the valleys of the church and everything else because the church was a mystery, and we'll get into that later on. But as you put it all together, what happens when the New Testament comes along, and the Lord Jesus Christ comes, is the New Testament builds upon the Old Testament. See, we'd have a problem if we came to the New Testament and tried to compare it to the Old Testament. They just kind of don't jive, and we're trying to fit a, a square peg in a round hole. But the New Testament fulfills what the Old Testament has already prophesied and given us. Lord Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the Old Testament. He came and all the quotes to the New Testament attributing the fulfillment of him and what he has done. Paul's biggest tool when he would go in the synagogue and reason with them was the Old Testament. He takes it in. We know from uh, the Ethiopian eunuch as he opened up Isaiah 53 and he couldn't understand what he was reading and Philip came alongside of him. He led him to the Lord through the Old Testament. So there's nothing in the Old Testament that we got to shy away because we know that the New Testament gives us fuller understanding of what the Old Testament had prophesied. Now, it's even true within the New Testament. Sometimes, and what we see in the Old Testament is you'll have one verse, and within that one verse, you're going to have the first and the second coming, but you don't see it. You wouldn't understand it if you are reading it. You would think it's all one coming. The same is that we have in... uh, In the resurrection, where in John chapter 6, it talks about the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. And there's two resurrections there, and it seems from reading that verse that it's at the same time. They're all going to be resurrected at the same uh, instant. You get into Revelation, you see there's a thousand years between that first resurrection and the second resurrection. We know the Lord at times, he spoke in parables to the people so they wouldn't understand And so it is, as as we search through the scriptures, God is putting it in there that through the Spirit of God, He will bring out the Word of God to us and reveal it to those that are diligently, diligently seeking and searching. So the New Testament is going to give us fuller truth. It builds on the Old Testament. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 and verse 13, in which is a very familiar story. And it's the, the two men that were on the road to Emmaus. And as they were on that road, they continued on. And the Lord Jesus came uh, to walk with them. Verse 13 says, Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which is seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And he goes on to tell them, and for sake of time, we're going we're to drop down to uh, verse 25. 24, and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was it, just as the woman had said, but him they did not see, speaking of the resurrection. Verse 25, then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? Now look at, look at verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, we have tremendous Bible conferences, and the ones that just went back to the Rise Up Conference, they got some tremendous teaching. I'd pass it all up to be under this teaching right here. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus himself expounding the Old Testament, bringing alive all the pictures from Genesis all the way through of all the stuff that spoke of him and how he was going to come and suffer and die. It'd be tremendous. The Old Testament is not lacking with examples of proving that Jesus is the Christ. The problem is, is that men are failing to see the examples in the Old Testament. See, they're there, but they're spiritually discerned and the Spirit of God gives them understanding Again, and look at the end of this chapter in verse 45. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Oops, I went too far ahead. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So we're going to have confidence in the Old Testament that when we look at these things, that these are written of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not that Jesus has shied away because you actually get into the writings of these uh, Jewish writings and they try to compel people why Jesus was not the Messiah and that there's others that came along the same as him. But in fact, Jesus is the Messiah that came. Now, we're going to be flipping through some verses here. But the reason being is because I want you to see him and I want you to write them down as well. Look to Luke chapter 4. Gospel Luke chapter 4. The hard part in putting this message together was Not in finding scriptures, was that not including all the scriptures because we'd be turning forever. But um, I got a few here down that we can flip through and see. Look at Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. This is where the Lord Jesus comes and applies the fulfillment to himself. 16 says, So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the, at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? You see, if we were to turn to Isaiah... Chapter 6, he in verses 1 and 2 there, you see, it, this is exactly what is quoted from here. But see, as you go on in the chapter, it goes on and it's going to describe the second advent of Christ. It's going to decide the, the, the millennial kingdom when Jesus returns. But from a, a, a prophet in the Old Testament, they may not see these two comings. But here, the Lord himself has separated out these two verses and said, look, this part of the prophecy has come true and has been fulfilled. Yet there's still a future part of it to be fulfilled later on. Look at Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. And one of the, the amazing things is that When it comes to the Messiah and his coming, it's not like it's just a general, broad revelation that you just throw out there. And what I mean by that, it's not just, hey, one of the 12 tribes of Israel is going to have a child and he's going to be your Messiah. And he's going to come from one of the 12 tribes. He'll be a Jew. But actually, it's very precise in what is predicted of the Messiah to come. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathat, though you were little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from, from of old, from everlasting. And look at how precise this is, is that not only is going to come from Judah, but that this one is going to come out of Bethlehem. Where was the Lord Jesus Christ born? In Bethlehem. Now, I want you to think about it. Now, we know Joseph didn't live there at the time. He lived up in Nazareth. But they had to travel down there for the census. You see, in Galatians, it talks about the fullness of time when the Lord Jesus Christ was going to come. That the mighty hand and the sovereign hand of God had to work it out of such that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. Only God can do this stuff. But they have all the, the stuff come about in the order that would bring Joseph down at the time of birth of Mary for this child. Now, I want you to look at the second part, and what what did the the Jewish writer say? He said that this Messiah is not some demi-god. he is not some some god, he's not a sovereign being, but he's going to be just a man. Verse 2 says, yet out of you shall come forth to me. The one to be the ruler in Israel who is going forth are from of old, from everlasting. This is not just an ordinary man. This is one that is coming from eternity past. One who's been around. One that's eternal. And this son that's going to come, he is going to be God come in the flesh. You see, the Hebrews have the same Bible that we have here. And it's translated in their Hebrew Bible. It's here. They just got to read it and accept it. Turn with me over to Jeremiah chapter 23. I I hope this stuff excites you as it does me. I, I get, because this is prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus came. This wasn't written at the time that Jesus came. And let me fill it in. This was written way before. Because God is faithful in His Word and to fulfill what He has said, and he can bring it about a a, a Savior, the Messiah, their particular seed, and preserve that seed and bring that Messiah at the right time. Jeremiah chapter 23, and we'll begin reading in verse, let's read in verse 3, and I want you, I'll read some of the extra verses so you can get a little bit of a glimpse of what they're talking about in the Millennial Kingdom to come, but And what God's going to do and how he's going to gather together. Israel right now that are scattered abroad throughout the world. And God is going to gather together Israel back to their land. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And bring them back to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. And they shall fear no more nor be dismayed nor shall they be lacking says the Lord. Verse 5, I want you to see. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to, raise to David a branch of righteousness. Now notice that. Right there, if you stop after righteousness, that's the first coming. He raised through David a branch of righteousness. This is the Messiah that was to come. And he came and he was born. But you see, in the prophet of old, that's one mountain peak. The second mountain peak is going to be a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth in his days judah will be saved and israel will dwell safely now this is his name by which he will be called the lord our righteousness therefore behold the days are coming says the lord that they shall no longer say as the lord lives who brought up the children of israel from the land of egypt but as the lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of israel from the north country and from all the countries where I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. This hasn't happened yet. Israel is going to possess in its entirety the land that God promised through Abraham. He's able to do it. And the king that's going to reign is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ in his second coming. But see, they missed this aspect. They missed the aspect of the first coming, that he's going to come and suffer and die. But in the second coming, they saw it clearly. They saw this victorious king. They saw this, this righteous one that's going to rule and bring the glory back to Israel and fulfill the promise given to David. Within one verse, you have two comings, but yet to them, they didn't quite see it here. Now, as we go on, look at Isaiah chapter 7. Now we're going to get into some of these uh, Christmas verses that we love so much. Isaiah chapter 7. And look at verse, we'll start reading verse 13. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary, for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Look at verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. But look at this. An amazing prophecy. Number one, virgin birth. Virgin birth. Now it's recorded in history. In what we have in the New Testament of Mary who was born, who, who conceived a child, yet she never knew a man. Yet hundreds of years beforehand, it's just written probably Isaiah what eight eight BC or so, is that this one was gonna conceive not by male, but by the act of God himself, a miracle. What a tremendous thing. This takes the guessing game out of who's going to be the Messiah. This takes away from, hey, this guy could be or this guy can be. Number one, Mary conceived. She actually went in hiding and thought it was a shameful thing because she couldn't explain to people how she conceived because people wouldn't believe her. But yet from the Old Testament, they should have known this one that you're going to conceive. And look at what his name is going to be called. Emmanuel, which is God with us. Here again, this, this Hebrew that, that wrote on the paper that God is not, that the Messiah is not God. He's just a man. Well, if he'd read his own scriptures in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, he would see that it's God I'm in the flesh switch over to isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 for unto us a child is born for unto us a son is given here you have the first coming here you have a child that's being born to mary but look at this unto us a son is given this is the father who gives the son for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son, the son of God, the eternal one, Emmanuel, the one that is eternal, that created all things, God gives. And a son was given. Now you notice to say it doesn't say a son was born, a child is born. The son was always there. The son was given. The child is born. Here, for the first time, God takes on flesh and blood, the perfect God-man. Something we can't really explain, but we believe and we accept that Jesus was 100% God, carried all the attributes of God, was divine, yet he was 100% man. He got hungry like you and I did. Yet he was sinless because we know because he wasn't born from a male but was a virgin birth. That sinful nature that is passed on from Adam to each one of us is not passed on to the Lord Jesus Christ. The second at coming, and his government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here we go again, Mighty God. You see, according to uh, Mosaic law, you, you can't call someone else God unless they are God, otherwise you would be breaking the Ten Commandments. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. But you see how the prophets combined the two comings into one? They didn't see these two aspects, but they combined it. So when they look at this, they think it's one coming. Moving on through Isaiah chapter 11, we're out of time. Isaiah 11 verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But his righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Do you see how it transitions between the first coming and the second coming in here? You see the coming in the first part, and then the second coming, it transitions into the king. We're out of time. We'll pick it up again tonight as we go further into it, because we haven't even got into Isaiah 53, the man of sorrows. We've just scratched the surface. But I hope from this small little looking at a few verses that you can see God is faithful from the Old Testament. That in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman that he came, that he might redeem us from all the sin, from our curse, by being born under the law and dying for us. What a tremendous Savior we have, that there is, in fact, two comings. One, he came to suffer and to die. The second coming is yet future. He will come to reign. And we're going to come with him. Let's bow in prayer. Gracious God and Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We know that you are faithful. We know that you are not slack concerning your promise, but everything's in your timing and what you work out. You're in absolute control, even though we see the, the uh, decline of morality around us. We see the wickedness of man. We know that you are in absolute control. Father, we just look forward to the day that you send your son and that he comes to return for the church and to take us home, that we will forever be with him wherever he goes. Thank you so much for everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus we pray, amen.